0: Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays, 1230 to 3,
1: 770 CHQR. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Rob Breckenridge. On today's episode, tariffs or taxes and trade wars are destructive. Unfortunately, the U.S. president doesn't seem to think so. More complaints about Amber Alerts. Isn't the safe return of an abducted child more important than somebody's phone waking them up? Also, the horrible phenomenon of kids dying in hot vehicles. Why does this happen and how could we stop it? Plus, former Cabinet Minister Peter McKay has a lot to say about the case of Vice Admiral Mark Norman.
0: They want to make a deal. It could absolutely happen. But uh, in the meantime, a lot of money is being made by the United States and a lot of strength is being shown. I understand that, but the president says China doesn't. China, it pays the tariffs. They may suffer consequences, but it's U.S. businesses and U.S. consumers who pay, correct? Yes, to some extent. I I don't disagree with that.
1: Well, the first clip was uh, U.S. President Donald Trump today talking about this trade dispute between the U.S. and China. The second clip was his economic advisor, Larry Kudlow, speaking over the weekend on Fox News Sunday with Chris Wallace. Uh, The two clearly at odds on who is paying these tariffs. Uh, And it appears as though more tariffs may be coming. As talks have broken down between the U.S. and China and there have been uh, tariffs imposed on both sides, the U.S. has now listed $300 billion more in Chinese goods for possible tariff hikes. Now, the rhetoric from the president suggests that maybe he doesn't view these tariffs as uh, a necessary evil in trying to win a trade war. He seems to really believe that tariffs are good policy. And that other countries are the ones who pay them. Now, China may suffer as a result of these tariffs. But they are certainly protectionist policies and they are indeed taxes. U.S. importers, U.S. consumers are going to be the ones to pay them. So what does that tell us about where this all goes from here? And look, there are legitimate concerns about China's trade practices, concerns that countries like Canada certainly share. There are better ways of of addressing that. Joining us for some thoughts on all of this, very pleased to welcome to the program Dan Eikenson. He is director of the Herbert A. Stiefel Center for Trade Policy Studies at the Cato Institute, more at Cato.org, also freetrade.org. Dan, thank you so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program.
2: Thank you. My pleasure.
1: Uh, Is it safe to call this a, a trade war between the U.S. and China at this point?
2: Yes, it's, uh, it's pretty clearly a trade war. We've had four rounds of escalation. I think the first tariffs were uh, notified in June of last year on about $16 billion of Chinese goods. The Chinese retaliated uh, commensurately. Uh, we added another $34 billion by the end of July. Uh, China responded in kind, and then uh, President Trump got upset that the Chinese were retaliating instead of correcting the policies he was aiming the tariffs at, uh, and said, I'm going to hit $200 billion of Chinese imports with 25% tariffs, but he held off at 10% a- until last week, and so now... Uh, about half of all imports from China are, are are subject to 25% duties. China is subjecting about $110 billion worth of U.S. exports to uh, its own duties. And now Trump has just n- announced that the remainder of Chinese goods will be subject to 25% duties uh, in about a month. So, yeah, that's pretty much a trade war, I'd say.
1: And, and it's pretty substantial as well. I mean, I mean it become, the question becomes much more important then as to who ends up footing the bill for that. I mean, you heard the clip of uh, his economic advisor, Larry Kudlow, who I think understands it is maybe leery about contradicting the boss but let's let's make it clear for people I mean who pays these tariffs
2: yeah that's that's right tariffs are taxes and those taxes are uh, incurred by uh, consumers and so you know when Americans import uh, the importer pays the custom service the tariff uh, and that the, that cost uh, is passed on to the businesses, if they're intermediate goods, you know, inputs for their production, capital equipment that they use to make products, uh, it's it's reflected in higher prices. Um, and if it's not reflected in the higher prices, if they absorb some of it, then their profits are lower. So their costs go up, the revenues don't go up commensurately, and the profits go down. Meanwhile, if it's a, an end product, it's consumers that go to the retail stores who end up uh, paying for it. So they end up having, uh, you know, less spending power. So cost of living goes up, the cost of production goes up, profits go down, investment goes down, the economy faces a greater likelihood of contraction.
1: It is a protectionist policy, and that's that's been the argument, not not just from this president, but but uh, it's been an argument for a very long time, that it's a way of trying to build up a, a domestic industry, like the Milton Friedman example of the bananas grown in hothouses, a country like Canada even. We could put massive tariffs on bananas, and we could try to uh, encourage the growth of a domestic hothouse banana industry. But, but what is the downside? I mean, certainly protectionists will play that up as you know, more jobs here at home, but what gets left out of that? equation?
2: Well, we, when we don't focus on producing what we produce best and we produce things that others produce best, we're wasting resources. It's better uh, for the United States or for Canada to import products that others produce more efficiently that frees up resources for Americans and Canadians to spend on other products made domestically or abroad or to save and invest. Uh, it just defies the idea that we can be more efficient. Uh, so, I mean, since the end of the Second World War, trade Barriers have come down dramatically. Trade has expanded considerably and has contributed significantly to to global uh, economic growth. Uh, You know, Trump's application of tariffs with respect to the Chinese, uh, his view is, hey, the Chinese are, are engaging in practices that they need to change. They're violating the WTO commitments. And I think he's right there. And I also think that had Hillary Clinton won, she would be pursuing similar uh, resolutions as well, but, but, but not the way Trump is doing it. He's gone unilaterally, which means we're, we're watering down our leverage to compel the Chinese to, to do right. Had we stood shoulder to shoulder with the Canadians and the Europeans and the Japanese, whose exporters face the same problems in, in, in China, I think we would have had a greater chance of success more quickly. Instead, the burden is being shouldered now by U.S. consumers and U.S. businesses alone.
1: What are those concerns?
2: Uh, The concerns about China?
1: Yeah. Yeah, So,
2: you know, China entered the World Trade Organization in 2001. It was a good thing. Uh, They engaged in all sorts of reforms in the years leading up to that accession. Uh, And since the early 2000s, it's kind of stopped its reforms. And uh, uh, so among the the, the The major issues that concern exporters from the from the west uh, are forced technology transfer you know if you want to sell uh, or invest in China, you need to joint venture with a local company and you need to turn over often you need to turn over technology and uh, you know the the, the secrets the the, uh, the the codes and all that stuff and uh, and that's a price. You, 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 it's a price of entry. And if you don't do that, you don't get in. And if you if you do it or complain about it, uh, the likelihood that there would be retribution from Beijing uh, would sort of keep you out of the market anyway. So people went along with it. Companies went along with it for years. Also, intellectual property uh, rights enforcement has been somewhat lax. Uh, you know, the Chinese are trying to get to the technological fore and leapfrog the U.S. and uh, using indigenous innovation policies and. Other policies that, uh, that 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 don't seem to be consistent with you know a free market. There's a lot of state-owned enterprises that still play a major role in the economy. A lot of industries that have not opened up that were supposed to have opened up by now, particularly in the services sectors. So those are legitimate issues. Trump, you know, makes a, makes a mess of it by conflating it with things like the trade balance, and you know he thinks exports are our points and. Imports are our China's points in the trade account is the scoreboard, and we have a deficit, so we're losing. And that's just the wrong way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he's, he's, he's very underinformed about economics, and the fact that the Earth is still spinning on its axis two and a half years after he took office uh, it really is, a, is an amazing feat.
1: Well, and you would alluded to the World Trade Organization that these, these issues that we have with China, and it's obviously not unique to the United States, that so the World Trade Organization, the WTO mechanisms, would be a way of dealing with those issues. So why aren't we dealing with those issues there?
2: Well, that's exactly a question that we've been raising for a long time. Um, it just so happens that a narrative sort of emerged in Washington over the past few years that that the WTO can't really rein China in. Some of the things that China's doing it hadn't uh, agreed to uh, did not do when it joined the WTO. I, I think that's a false narrative. I think, uh, uh, in fact, we've, we've done research here at Cato, uh, Pointing out that uh, uh, in, in just about every case where China, where the WTO has ruled against China to f- found that China was not upholding its obligations, China has come into compliance, or it's in the process of coming into compliance. So it it does a very good job of respecting the rules. It just requires that you bring cases and and go through the the, the, the whole process. Uh, the other thing is the Trump administration, particularly Bob Lighthizer, the USTR. Uh, is, is a big skeptic of the WTO. He's a form, you know, he's a trade lawyer. He's uh, represented steel industry interests. Uh, a lot of those in trade remedies cases, anti-dumping cases uh, where the U.S. has lost at the WTO for good reason. So he, he is, uh, he has a bone to pick. And so, uh, and, and there's just a general Aversion in this administration, I think, to some of these international institutions that arose in the wake of the Second World War. There's a view, I think, that you know the United States is this benevolent giant, and, and that we haven't been paid enough respect, and, and that uh, we were owed tribute. And I think they they want to sort of abandon those old institutions and sort of assert U.S. sovereignty a little bit more. And they don't recognize that there are huge costs to to going that route.
1: Yeah, uh, and, and the Trans-Pacific Partnership as well. That, that uh, you know one of his first acts is president was to, to pull the U.S. out of that. I think it was originally intended to be a trade bloc that, that could counter China, be a counterweight to China. Was there a missed opportunity there?
2: Absolutely. And I, I've called that the biggest foreign policy blunder since the Iraq invasion for the United States uh, that kept uh, that would extend Pax Americana, that would extend U.S. soft power into Asia. And, you know, a lot of people called it, you know, a, a deal that contained China, but I, I didn't see it that way. And I think the reality was the, the way it would have worked is China would have seen all of its peripheral neighbors joining the TPP, a U.S.-led, you know, uh, uh, organization, and... Um, and, and the price of entry is to have higher standards, better respect for intellectual property, reduction of state-owned enterprises, those kinds of things China would have seen as necessary to undertake in order to be a part of this club. And I think China would have wanted to join the TPP. It probably would have been called you know, the free trade area of the Asia-Pacific by then, but the, the, it would have been a... <sighs> A less uh, in your face way of uh, kind of compelling china to to do what we think it needs to do, and we we blew it off uh, because the president doesn 't like uh, these international
1: arrangements uh, so in the meantime, I mean is this going to get worse before it gets better
2: you know it 's kind of looking that way i mean the, you know Trump has made a bit of a mess here and and uh, you know if we 're going to tax all imports from China and china's going to respond in kind. Uh, We're going to see a lot of uh, disinvestments. We're going to see U.S. companies moving away from China. We're going to see Chinese investment leaving here as well. But Trump needs to deliver on the promises that he was going to strike a tough deal with China. It just so happens there's broad bipartisan support for getting tough with China. Mm-hmm. Uh there's not broad bipartisan support for the tariff approach or the unilateral lo- you know the the lone wolf approach. But if he doesn't he's uh, delivered the goods, the Democrats are going to outflank him and contest him for um, the the rust belt voters that went for Trump in 2016. And if he doesn't uh, get that and he insists on it and then the trade war is going to endure and there's going to be a lot of pain on on main street and wall street. So either way, I think Trump is going to pay in the end and that that couldn't uh, come any sooner.
1: Well, much more at uh, freetrade.org, also cato.org. Dan, thank you so much for the insight. Appreciate you joining us here today.
2: It's been my pleasure. Thanks very much.
1: All man. right, take care. Uh, Dan Eikenson, uh director of the Herbert A. Stifel Center for Trade Policy Studies at the Cato Institute, freetrade.org. I can imagine if you're asleep, maybe at night or having a nap in the in the middle of the day and something wakes you up, that's annoying. But if you're having a nap, uh, say, in your deck and uh, the Stars Air Ambulance is, is flying by uh, on its way to, to a serious crash and trying to rush somebody to hospital to save their life, you would understand that. If an ambulance goes whizzing by your house with the siren on, rushing somebody to hospital, trying to save their life, you would understand that. Police car goes by, sirens on, responding to a dangerous, life-threatening situation. You would understand that. Because people are doing their jobs to try to save somebody's life or save lives, that you being woken up seems like a pretty minor concern in comparison. So I, this, this whole bit of business around Amber Alerts, I, I see in, in that same vein. The Amber Alert exists to try to ensure that law enforcement, emergency officials, can intervene and save the life of a child who is in imminent danger. So the fact that it woke you up or bothered you is a pretty minor and petty complaint. And even if, even if I concede the point that, okay, your phone went off, you're in bed, what are you going to do about the Amber Alert? The fact that people would call 911 is mind-boggling. Again, the Amber Alert went out because a child is missing in its emergency situation. And what planet does it make sense to burden the emergency system With your complaint at that exact moment, if you really think that somebody needs to hear your petty complaint, maybe save it for a few hours or a day or so. Maybe the midst of that emergency is not the time for your complaint. It's certainly not the kind of thing you would phone 911 about. Toronto Police Service with a tweet today. Once again, our communication center has been receiving a number of calls from citizens using it as a platform to complain about being awakened by the Amber Alert. Reminder, 911 is for emergencies only. Please help us to keep our phone lines free for real emergencies. Seems pretty common sense. Joining us to talk about the value of the Amber Alert system and the strange phenomenon it's not the first time we've seen this, uh, of people phoning 911 to complain about receiving an Amber Alert. Very pleased to welcome the program, Karen Shimmy, Director of Operations with the Canadian Centre for Child Protection. Karen, thank you for joining us here. Welcome to the program.
3: Thank you for having me.
1: Uh, how, just from your own perspective, you hear these stories, you hear people reacting this way to an Amber Alert. I mean, how frustrating is it?
3: it it's overwhelmingly discouraging and, and disappointing, for sure. Um with the recent alerts, there's been a, a number of them over the last couple of months, Amber Alerts that have been sent out. And I think in every situation we've seen, both on social media and um, to, the law, to law enforcement agencies and to ourselves, where people are expressing their concern about receiving these alerts and, and the interruption that it's caused in their lives.
1: Right, which seems pretty minor in comparison to the urgency of the situation, which is why there's an Amber Alert in the first place.
3: That's right. There's very specific criteria that need to be met for police to issue an Amber Alert. And the reality is we, you know, I think the RCMP statistics from last year, we saw about 40,000 missing kid in, missing children incidents, but obviously not an Amber Alert isn't issued in each one of those. Mm-hmm. Um, so the urgency with which... Um, they, they use that system and the belief that a child is in grave danger, um, it, it's a pretty rare system to use comparative to the number of kids that go missing. So it's important that when it is being used um, that people understand that it's being used for, for an important reason and it's in the hope that we can help, the public can help to find that child.
1: Right. It's named after a girl, I believe, in, in Texas who was abducted and murdered uh, over 20 years ago. Her name was Amber, so this this came about in response to that. So it, it, it illustrates for people, I think, why this exists. And as you say, there's a specific set of criteria for how and when an Amber Alert goes out. What, what are those criteria?
3: They do vary a little bit by province to province, but generally um, it needs to be issued in relation to a child. So someone under 18... Um, there has to be a belief that the child's been abducted and that they are in grave danger and that there should be some information available to help locate the child or the abductor, some information about a description on who they are or the vehicle that they might be in or how they're traveling. Um, and it should be issued within a reasonable amount of time from the time that the abduction is believed to have occurred to when they're issuing it.
1: Now the good news in this case in Toronto is that the uh, young boy was was found safe. The one recently uh, in in um, near Toronto had a much more tragic outcome. Uh, yeah. in, in terms of. Now it's it's more recent that we have the ability to send these amber alerts out via phone which is what's leading to some of these complaints but but obviously there's there's a range a, a geographical range I mean if there's an amber alert that goes out in Toronto that wouldn't go across the country obviously so wh- how how were those decisions made about how far an amber alert needs to go Correct so the
3: these New alerts are being issued through the Alert Ready emergency alert system. Um, we don't operate that system, but it's my understanding that it's issued if it, it's issued within the province where it's believed that the child may be. Um, so if it's believed that the child may be traveling to another province, they have the ability to issue it in multiple provinces, or it's specific to the province where the child is believed to be.
1: Mm-hmm. some of the complaints uh, i've seen from people uh, via social media and elsewhere is that you know they get the amber alert in the middle of the night they're in bed they're maybe not near or close to to where it happened they feel as though this is of no value to me this information's of of no use to me there's nothing i can do about it given where i am and uh, geographically the fact that I'm, I'm in bed i mean what do you say to people uh, who would respond that way though
3: I think there's a couple things. I mean, one, we don't know how long the alert's going to be active for. So they may be getting up in an hour or two hours and maybe going out and um, then they've got the information when, when they leave their house and they're out and about because um, the alert may still be active at that time. We also don't know. There, there are people who are out in the public at that time too. So for them to receive it and have the information and be able to be on the lookout, be paying attention and know um, that they can report any information that they're aware of to law enforcement is really important. The other thing... I mean, part of the other thing is, even if they don't feel like they're able to be looking or providing information, minimally, they can, they can send well wishes or send, you know, positive thoughts and, and hopes to, to the family who's in this struggle and, and dealing with a situation where they don't know where their child is and they're struggling with that.
1: Yeah. Well, and I guess, I mean, the way for people to think about it would be that, imagine if that were your child, Right.
3: Exactly, and, and if it were your child, you would, I, I think most people or all people, if it was their child or a child in their family, they would want everybody to be on the lookout and to be knowing and doing the most that they can to try to locate that child as quickly as possible.
1: Now, even if people want to view it selfishly and then just be mad about the fact that they've been woken up, I suppose people can, can react that way if they choose, but to call nine one one. Right now, emergency officials are aware of the, the situation a child is missing, and that's where their focus needs to be. So it becomes a distraction at that point, doesn't it, if people are complaining by phoning 911?
3: It does, and, and we know 911 is already a very busy service, and they're managing and triaging all sorts of very urgent situations. So to be trying to respond to to situations that like this or complaints that don't fit what they're there to deal with is is not a good use of their time or for the people they're trying to respond to.
1: Some important points. More at protectchildren.ca. Karen, thank you so much for joining us here to talk about this. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. All right. That is Karen Jimmy, who is a Director of Operations with the Canadian Center for Child Protection, that Amber Alerts exists for a reason. Uh, and there's a whole tragic backstory to how the Amber Alert system came about in the first place. But the idea is that we could save a child's life. Was 10 years ago that Gene Weingarten won a Pulitzer Prize for his Washington Post feature called Fatal Distraction. A close examination of a very disturbing and horrific phenomenon. Young children dying, trapped in vehicles. Dying of heat-related injuries. As he wrote, two decades ago, this was relatively rare. In the early 90s, car safety experts declared passenger side front airbags could kill children. They recommended the child seats be moved to the back of the car. And then even for even more safety for the very young, the baby seats be pivoted to face the rear. If you foresaw the tragic consequences of the lessened visibility of, of the child, well, who can blame them? What kind of person forgets a baby? The wealthy do, as it turns out, and the poor and the middle class, parents of all ages and ethnicities do it. Mothers are just as likely to do it as fathers. It happens to the chronically absent-minded and to the fanatically organized, to the college-educated and to the marginally literate. In the last 10 years, it has happened to a dentist, a postal clerk, a social worker, a police officer, an accountant, a soldier, a paralegal, an electrician, a nurse, a construction worker, a principal, happened to a pediatrician, happened to a rocket scientist. Last year, it happened three times in one day, the worst day so far and the worst year so far, and a phenomenon that gives no signs of abating. 10 years later, it is still a phenomenon that shows no signs of abating. Uh, the numbers in the US paint a disturbing picture. Last year 51 children died in hot cars in the United States, the highest number of fatalities in one year. Of course, we had last week a tragedy here in our country. The last week in Burton BBC, a 16-month-old died after spending 9 hours inside a vehicle on a very warm day in the lower mainland. How does this happen? How can we prevent this from happening? Why haven't we been able to prevent this from happening? Joining us for more, pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon, Amber Rollins, director with kidsandcars.org. Amber, appreciate you joining us here today. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, Yeah, I mean, it's not a phenomenon that's unique to the United States, but uh, obviously you can speak to the situation there. Last year, 51 deaths, which is the highest uh, number on record since your organization has been documenting this. Why aren't we getting a handle on this problem?
4: Yeah, and actually, sadly, I've got an update to that. The number for last year um, was 52 deaths. We just learned about a new case that uh, happened last Uh. year. So 52, um, you know... We've been educating and raising awareness about this topic for 20 years now, and, uh, you know, you can't talk to a person down here in the States that doesn't know about hot car deaths and, and you know hasn't heard about it on the news or read about it in the newspaper, and uh, yet it continues to happen. And we really believe that uh, this is something that parents just can't wrap their head around and that we're going to have to do more than educate and raise awareness. To prevent this mm-hmm. and um, we are actually getting ready to introduce the federal bill here uh, that would require a technological system and vehicles that would be able to detect the presence of a child and even an animal that is trapped inside of a hot car
1: well i mean that's another side but we hear a lot of those cases too of, of pets uh needlessly suffering and dying this, this same way, so that, that, would, that would address that problem as well. But certainly, first and foremost, to save the lives of children is the primary concern here. Um, how, how can technology play a role here? Well, there's
4: all sorts of different systems that exist. Um, some of them use weight sensors. Others detect light motion you know, as small as a newborn baby breathing. Um, some of them use carbon dioxide detection. But the general um, idea behind these technologies is that they need to be able to tell when there's an occupant inside the vehicle when it's parked and turned off and uh, be able to alert the outside world and the driver of the vehicle that somebody is trapped in there.
1: Now, some cars do have this. And, in fact, there's there's one in particular. I forget which one. I've been seeing a, a, a TV commercial lately where they, they're... A guy's driving his wife and mother-in-law to, to the hospital, and he forgets them in the back seat, and, and he's notified of that. So do some vehicles already have this technology?
4: Yeah, so several GM and Nissan vehicles have a system that is done by door sequencing. So it doesn't actually detect a living being inside the vehicle, but it does know to tell you uh, at the end of your trip to check the back seat if you had opened that back door prior to driving somewhere. And you know, one of the problems with that system is that um, if you stop to get gas on your way to work and you don't open the back door, it's not going to remind you when you get to this to check the back seat because you just open that back door and you stop the gas. Right. So you know, that's a second right direction and an extra layer of protection, but not ideal um, and not 100% effective. Um, now Hyundai and um, Hyundai and Kia have come out with systems in some of their models that would actually be able to detect the presence of a child in a vehicle. And it does that by using motion sensing and weight sensing. And, and it would be able to alert you if somebody was left behind or if they got in on their own. Mm-hmm.
1: So that we, the idea would be to make that mandatory in, in new cars, I assume. But obviously, that that wouldn't really address all the cars that are all, already out there, would it?
4: Yeah. So the, the regulation would address any newer vehicles. Uh, now there are aftermarket technologies available out there that can be added to vehicles. Um, you know, it's just a matter of people um, understanding and recognizing that they need that technology, uh, which is really a big hurdle for the aftermarket systems. because no one thinks this is gonna happen to them.
1: Well, yeah, and that's the important point in all of this is that people don't understand this because it it looks like, it feels like, it seems like neglect, and and how could somebody forget where their child is or not know that their child's in the vehicle after having put them there? But talk a bit about how, how this does happen.
3: Well,
4: I can tell you I've been doing this for 14 years. And I have um, known over those years many, many parents personally that this has happened to. And what I can tell you is that they are wonderful, loving, responsible, highly educated individuals. And just like most of you out there, they never thought this could happen to them until it did. And, uh, you know, that's, I would caution people uh, who have that mindset. Um, to, you know, make a little change. Just change your routine, do things to make sure that you're checking that vaccine every time because you never know. And uh, the brain science behind this says that this could happen to anybody. And what happens is when we're... So anybody who's out there who has little kids is going to be going, uh-huh, yep, I know what you're talking about. People who have young kids are completely sleep deprived. And fatigue and sleep deprivation are both factors that increase our um, ability or our brain function to switch to autopilot. Right. And autopilot is what allows you to get in your vehicle and drive to work without even thinking about where you're going. Uh, you know, your, your brain has these habit memory systems. And so when you're driving in autopilot mode, uh, your brain systems are not able to account for a change in routine. And that's where you run into problems. And um, if you've got a child who's in a rear-facing car seat, riding in the back seat, and they're not making a sound, which most infants do. They fall asleep the instant you get in a car. Um, You don't have any visual or audio reminders to interrupt that autopilot mode and remind you that there's somebody back there. And It's not that these parents are forgetting that they have children or forgetting them there. They're actually awareness that they're back there. And it's because they're in autopilot mode when you go from point A to point B without, you know, thinking about what you're doing. And it's not really a conscious choice that you make to go into autopilot. It's something that automatically happens. It's sort of like a survival mechanism in our brains that allows us to get through the day when we're extremely exhausted and um, you know, we've got a million things going on, and we haven't been sleeping. Um, so just, I mean, I can't stress enough, this could happen to anybody. We all have the same brain systems that function in the same basic way, and uh, nobody's mirrored.
1: it's an important point. Now, there's the other aspect of the phenomenon. I think it's a smaller part of the the problem. But situations where kids are playing outside or, you know, cars are left unlocked, kids are climbing into vehicles and and getting stuck in there that way. Do we have any idea of approximately what proportion of these tragedies involve that kind of a scenario?
4: Yeah, so over half are children who are unknowingly left. Those parents have lost awareness that they were in the backseat. And then one-third of hot car deaths happen when a child gets into a vehicle and is then unable to get themselves out. And, um, you know, these are just so easily preventable. Uh, If people keep their vehicles locked and keep keys and remote openers out of reach of children at all times, then this won't happen. And... You know, it's not enough to take care of your own vehicle and keep that one locked. I would really encourage the parents to talk to their neighbors and ask them to please keep their vehicles or uh, you know, They're in close proximity to the neighbors' vehicles as well.
1: Much more at uh, kidsandcars.org. Amber, thank you so much for taking some time for us here today. Really appreciate this.
4: Yeah, thank you.
1: All right, Amber Rollins, uh, director with uh, KidsAndCars.org, an organization in the United States devoted to addressing and preventing this uh, horrible phenomenon. Well, as you heard in the news, as we talked about earlier today, the prime minister finally in the House of Commons today to answer some questions and a whole lot of questions about the case of Vice Admiral Mark Norman. How it was that he came to be charged with breach of trust and how it was that this case collapsed whole lot of questions I think the Canadians deserve answers to. Now, we're getting a bit more of a clear picture as to what emerged that led to the charge being stayed. But as much as we're learning about that, it also raises more questions about this RCMB investigation. For example, why didn't the investigation reach out to cabinet members, cabinet ministers from the previous government? Because after all, the decision was made at the time that we were going to acquire a supply ship for the Navy, a much-needed supply ship, one that Vice Admiral Mark Norman himself uh, felt was needed. Vice Admiral Mark Norman, as we've since learned, was authorized to speak with Davy, the Quebec-based shipbuilding company, uh, was authorized to communicate with them and authorized to make the deal happen, to get it over the finish line. So information that was provided to the defense and then subsequently provided to the crown led to this case collapsing. And a lot of that information came from members of Stephen Harper's cabinet, which includes, by the way, Alberta's new premier, Jason Kenney, and our next guest, Peter McKay, former cabinet minister, former defense minister, now a partner with Baker McKenzie LLP. Mr. McKay, good to have you with us. You're welcome to the program.
0: Hey, thanks, Rob. It's good to be with you.
1: Well, I mean, you've got a lot of unique perspectives on this as a former cabinet minister, as a lawyer, just as a Canadian. I mean, just your general impressions on what a mess this whole thing has been.
0: It really has been. And sadly for Canada, for our justice system, our Department of National Defense, it's, it's another black eye. Uh, you know, add to the, the list of... <sighs> miscarriages of justice what happened with SNC-Lavalin and political interference there uh, from the highest levels in my opinion the way in which uh, we have an extradition ongoing here in canada involving a Huawei executive and how the ambassador to china weighed in with public comments that resulted in his dismissal and he's yet to be replaced and in the meantime we have canadians on death row in their country and we're uh, seeing sanctions against western farmers And, you know, add to the list of questions that you have is one that has troubled me for some time as a former prosecutor, and that was the Prime Minister publicly suggesting on two occasions that Mark Norman was going to wind up before a court, Mm -hmm. before the RCMP had even charged him. That is bizarre in the extreme and inappropriate, to say the least. And then we have the -the after-the-fact revelation that the Privy Council Office, the bureaucratic wing of the Prime Minister, uh, preparing a a 60-page document to him on the Mark Norman case as the case was ongoing. And then when it was disclosed, all 60 pages were redacted, blacked out. So we don't know what exactly was transpiring there. So there, there are... A lot of questions to be sure that would bring about at least some accountability. The transparency and the sunshine that the Prime Minister promised are not forthcoming. And I think at the end of the day, uh, for Mark Norman, this has been an absolutely horrific experience to go through. A 37-year member of the Canadian Armed Forces, second highest in command in, in our command structure, and the son of a a long-serving member of the Canadian Forces as well, essentially his entire life dedicated to the defense of Canada and to have been accused of what is tantamount to a, a, a subsection of treason here, a breach of public trust, with no benefit to him, and then to have the case stayed, not withdrawn, which would denote that it could never be brought back, but stayed essentially on the courthouse steps, uh, is a tremendous miscarriage of justice and, and a dark chapter in Canadian history.
1: Yeah. Now, in terms of that RCMP investigation, now, now you can clarify for us, because th- there was some contact with you on, on one very narrow issue, but w- what was that?
0: Well, there was, uh, as you would expect, I had regular contact with Mark Norman, both in my capacity as defense minister, firstly. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I went to the Department of Justice, I was still the chair of the National Security Committee, and as you alluded to, now Premier Kenny, then Defense Minister Kenny, and I and others were working with the Prime Minister, Harper, uh, to see that we were able to replace a, a critical enabler for the Navy, a supply ship that would allow us to refuel our ships at sea so we could have a true blue water Navy capable of participating in international missions, but most importantly, guarding our, our coastline and increasing coastline in the Arctic. And when we had two supply ships, the Preserver and the Protector, both deemed inoperable, one because of a fire and the other simply because it aged out and couldn't be repaired, we were in a real jam. And Mark Norman, because of his experience and previously being head of the Navy, now second in command of the Canadian Forces, was working very closely with us to see that we were able to get that capacity. Now, we had just embarked upon the National Shipbuilding Procurement Strategy, awarded large, multi-billion dollar contracts to both the the uh, C-SPAN company on the west coast and the Irving shipyard on the east coast. And so there was a question of capacity as to who could build this ship in the tight timelines that we were working with. Plus, we were coming to the end of the runway uh, prior to a federal election, so there was a lot of urgency to get this contract out the door, which is why it was sole-sourced and why Mark Norman, again, was so integral to getting this done and getting it done properly. I'm quick to add that it was arguably the most successful procurement that we've seen in 50 years. The MX Asterix, as it's called, is now operating, is now refueling Canadian ships, and it came in on time on budget, which is almost unheard of.
1: Yeah, it, it is pretty rare, unfortunately. but this is a good news story in, in that sense. So it, it was a ship that that's Vice Admiral Mark Norman, believed uh, would suit the needs in the Navy. It was a project that, that he supported, and and so you can confirm that and he, it was a project that he was authorized to take the lead on and authorized to speak with Davy about.
0: He was uh, he was very much in the loop on how we proceeded and and uh, provided invaluable information to both Minister Kenny and the the larger committee that was uh, tasked with finding a replacement, uh, proceeding, and doing so you know, through Public Works and Proper Channels there and Industry Canada, um, and, and working within the law. So that was where we were when we left office, having signed the contract. And this goes back, importantly, to the original sin, if you will. The incoming Liberal government were trying to put a hold or roll back anything their predecessors had done, including this contract, And I think when they put a hold on it um, and discovered that there would be penalties, of course, that would attach, much like what happened with the cancellation of the Sea King replacement, and they contemplated the embarrassment that that would cause, and then the leak happened, which further exacerbated their, their exposure, if you will, and their potential political fallout, they were looking for a scapegoat. They were looking for somebody who they could finger as having been the leaker, and then make an example of them this is my theory and i think that of the seventy three people who had the information including members of cabinet mark norman wasn't at the meeting where the decision was taken by the way to to put this on hold but having somebody like him associated with the prior government and putting his height on the wall would have a very chilling effect over the entire public service and in fact that's what happened much like when they made members of the Joint Strike Fighter or the Fighter Replacement Team sign lifelong uh, confidentiality agreements, this uh, this is coming from a government again who promised openness and transparency. Well, they have been pretty pretty tight and pretty heavy-handed when it comes to the dissemination of government information.
1: So. Th- it would appear as though that that you and Jason Kenney and others knew a lot about this, had a lot of light that you could have uh, shone on this case, uh, and that there was not a lot of interest on the part of investigators in in hearing or seeing all of that. Is that your impression?
0: Well, you you asked me previously about uh, interaction I had with the RCMP. I had one call about a single email that was on a very narrow issue, um, not really particular in my view, uh, of any evidentiary value to their case. But nevertheless, that was the only contact. And I read in the newspaper that I was going to be a Crown witness um, and never received any contact from the, the, the Crown or the prosecutor's office. I did, at their request, meet with uh, the defense team, that is Marie Hennen, uh, Christine Mainville, Mark Norman's def- lawyers, and uh, spoke with them for... A significant period of time and talked about procurement more broadly, my interactions with Mark Norman and, and the way that they were going to present their case. So yes, there were numerous witnesses who would have been available, and Mark Norman himself, let's not forget, was never interviewed by the RCMP.
1: So in terms of the information then that was brought to Mark Norman's defense team, and they in turn brought that to the Crown, did that include information that you provided?
0: I don't know the answer to that. That's That's speculation. Um, possibly, they, uh, let's not forget, would have to prove the mens rea, the operating mind, uh, as part of their, their their case, that is, the Crown. And they would also have to prove that there was some, as part of the single count of breach of trust, they would have to prove that Mark Norman did something that would benefit him, that would have been against the public interest. That, that's a high bar to meet in the first place. I would suggest that there was no benefit to Mark Norman he was only trying to benefit the Navy uh, the men and women who he felt an obligation to the country our national defense Uh, he was acting in the best traditions of leadership in the Canadian forces in ensuring that that he was doing everything he could to get them the necessary equipment to perform their important life-saving mission and defense of Canada and for that, he's paid a very high price.
1: So based on your time in government and based on your observations uh, from, from late 2015 on, I mean, are you com- comfortable and confident saying that this, this never should have happened in the first place?
0: Yes, I think that's absolutely correct. It never should have happened in the first place. And, you know, more to the point, there are other people who have perhaps been suspects, one who've been charged. But Mark Norman um, was suspended two years ago, has been operating under a very heavy cloud of accusation, and um, I think is now looking at uh, at least being able to tell his story publicly at some point in, in the future, hopefully the near future, will at least now be compensated for his significant legal fees, which is another thing that the government did, to put pressure on him, perhaps to force him to plead guilty, uh, they wouldn't pay his legal fees, which is highly unusual for a public servant and a member of the forces. He was denied two years' service that would uh, will affect him and his pension and, and his career. It ended badly, to say the least. Yeah. And and I suspect that he will be, and through his legal team, be seeking compensation. And, and some have referenced. Omar Kader's $10.5 million payout as somebody who fought against Canadian interests and built IEDs in Afghanistan, receiving that money. Uh, and I would like to personally see him not only reinstated, but perhaps promoted to being chief of the defense staff and ironically replacing the man who suspended him. And, and I like John Vance, and I think he was in a very difficult position himself, but has now served four years in that post.
1: It's a public inquiry... Maybe the, the way that we get answers, where, where do we need to go from here, do you think?
0: Well, there's precedent for that, and uh, a public inquiry would at least take it out of the realm of some of the political circus that you see in these parliamentary hearings. And look, I, I spent 18 years there and sat on many committees, but when you have a majority government who are at the center of the storm, who have majority control of those committees, as we saw in the SNC-Lavalin case, they shut it down, they put... Uh, parameters around what witnesses can be called and what those witnesses can say. And so a public inquiry or perhaps a, a civil trial, if Mark Norman is seeking compensation, is the only way we're going to hear from some of the principal actors, current cabinet ministers, former cabinet ministers, members of the prime minister's staff, people like Gerald Butts and others, the former clerk of the Privy Council, Uh, who demonstrated a great deal of partisanship in his appearance before a uh, parliamentary committee. And so, yes, that's a long answer to a short question. I think we do need a public inquiry and some airing of what happened here. Otherwise, we're always in danger of repeating these things.
1: Yeah, Some important points. Peter McKay, thank you so much for making some time for us here today. Really appreciate your input on this.
0: Happy to speak to you, Rob. All
1: the All best. Right, take care. Uh, that is Peter McKay, former uh, conservative cabinet minister, now a partner at Baker and McKenzie LLP in Toronto. So some really interesting insight into this uh, troubling case. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate and review for free on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge, and you can email me Rob at 770.chgr.com. Talk to you next time
0: Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge starting at 12:30 on News Talk 770 Calgary.